Hey there, it's Carolyn. Before we start today's podcast, I wanted to tell you about a brand new challenge that we have starting over in the Homestead Kitchen membership really soon. This one is all about making your very own herbal oils and culinary oils and cosmetic oils and turning them into salves and balms for your herbal medicine cabinet. If you're interested in joining me for the Herbal Oils and Salves Challenge, then go to homesteadingfamily.com forward slash podcast dash herbal oils. Again, that's homesteadingfamily.com forward slash podcast dash herbal oils. Hey you guys, this is Josh and Carolyn with Homesteading Family and welcome to this week's episode of the Pantry Chat Food for Thought. This week we're going to be answering your questions. It's going to be a lot of fun. This episode of the Pantry Chat podcast is sponsored by Made On Skin Care. Madon specializes in skincare specifically for dry skin, and they use as few ingredients as possible to get the job done. You guys, this is the type of skincare I would make myself if I had time to make it in my own home. And the great thing is, Renee even shares her exact recipes with you. The Bee Silk Lotion Bar is my go-to lotion when my hands get dry and cracked. And it's only made with three ingredients. Renee created it when she needed something to fix the splits in her fingers, cracks in her feet, and then she found out that it also worked great on her son's seasonal eczema. Go to hardlotion.com slash homesteadingfamily to find out what Josh's favorite made-on products are and also use the code homesteadingfamily for 15% off today's purchase. All right, so today we are going to be answering your questions, and we've got a great range of questions yeah. here from uh, gardening questions to fermenting uh, to some, you know, herbal questions, dairy. So there's there's a lot going on here. It's going to be really fun. Yeah, we haven't done a Q&A session in actually a long time. Well, I think so it's been a couple months. These are probably my favorite videos to do They're fun. all yeah. together. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm excited. Yeah. It's nice to be able to talk about a variety of topics mm -hmm. and things that we're not necessarily, you know, always thinking about every day or planning out. Right. And um, plus, hopefully it helps you guys out. So, but before we dive into that, here we are. It's February. Hey, happy Valentine's Day coming up <laughs> tomorrow. You're supposed to tell me, not them. Happy Valentine's oh. Day. <laughs> okay, thank you. I was going to remind the guys out there to make sure you're not forgetting and you're taking care of your ladies. Scramble quick That's if right. you've already forgotten. <laughs> but um, so besides Valentine's Day and prep for that, what's going on? Well, you know, this is still that time of year where we're just kind of enjoying that winter time and we're focused on our indoor quiet things a yep. lot. Um, we do get out and do get to do some winter sports and play outside a little bit. But um, the heavy focus right now is on school, homeschooling and yep. on reading and some things like that. So that really is what's taking a lot of my time is that just kind of insulating activities, you know, yep. sitting by the fire and. Drinking coffee. <laughs> Are you reading any good books right now? 
Well, well, I know you are. What's is there anything? You know, so I read about ten books at once. So I'm I have different books set in different places where I might sit down and read. Um, so you you kind of spring in that one on me because I wasn't ready with any title in particular, but one that I'm really enjoying right now is called Still Room Cookery, and it is an old older book. I don't know if it's still in print and um, it's a really fascinating it's really looking at different methods of food preservation and then cooking out of your pantry Mm -hmm. and um, it's really fun and I'm learning a lot from it and really enjoying it so I don't know that I can give you a link to it because I don't even think it's in print right now but if you can find it I'll look and see and if I can if I can find it I'll put a link to it down in the description but um, if you can find it it's worth getting. She is great at finding some amazing resources. You, you just come up with the most interesting stuff, which is why, why you know so much and well, have so many good tips about things because you really dig in and dig find this historical information yeah. that's hard to find. Well, and I've got to give credit where credit's due here, which is this book came as a recommendation from our amazing community manager, mm-hmm. Michelle, who is okay. always learning new things and she's always sharing them with me. And, uh, I just learned so much from her. She really recommended this book, and I am so excited to be able to have it. And uh, she's just amazing. She is runs our bread community that we have for students mm-hmm. of our bread class. So uh, it's a fun book. Right on. Yeah. Very cool. What about you? What have you been up to? Wow. Well, still working on that edition, little mm-hmm. bits at a time. Yep. Yep. That's <laughs> coming along. Um, a lot of planning, you know, mm-hmm. just a lot of planning for the year from garden planning uh, to just projects. That's the tough one. We've got so many projects we want to do. So we were just making up our list of what we'd like to do mm-hmm. and kind of went, yeah, okay. No wonder we're tired. Yeah. We, we, I don't think we can approach it that way this year. It, we did last year. We like we went just, gung-ho. just went after it, did everything we, we did could. did everything. And, and we were exhausted. Yeah. <laughs> so this year we're trying to get a little wise Yeah. and actually prioritizing, marking things as high priority, priority, or can wait. Yeah. And uh, so we're working through that. And man, that is really hard. There's so many things want to get done. All right. I want to do we it all. Really, and I really, do it right I now. mean, it's, it's hard <laughs> not to say need. We need to get done. And um, but anyway, so that's that's a lot and figuring that out so we can pace ourselves a little bit better this year. And we're yeah. going to talk about that maybe a little bit in one of these questions and just getting things done. Yeah. And um, so that's been good. And, you know, a lot more reading right now. A lot more reading. Yeah. yeah. Hey, as we're talking about planning, if you're a brand new gardener, I know we've had a lot of brand new gardeners join us this year. Um, check out our one of our latest blog posts on when to start your seeds. That is yep. really, really important to get off and get your year off right for the garden. And uh, so check the link in the description for that. Yeah, you bet. Cool. Well, we better just dive right in here, I think. And um, talking about gardening, the first questions are right out of uh, one of the recent videos. And this question is from Lori Shatney. Hey, Lori. On backyard gardens can seriously produce. And she says, I recently purchased a green stock. And I was wondering if you grew anything in your house in the green stock in the winter. If so, how did it do? Well, first of all, for those of you that don't know... Mm -hmm. The green stock is a vertical planting system that you can use um, outdoors on your porch, small spaces, in the house, like we'll talk about here in a moment. We've got large acreage, but we use a couple of them Mm -hmm. uh, to grow um, some veggies sometimes right close to the house. 
and we're going to use them even more for some leafy greens here in the early season. Right. Um, which gets to that question. Have we grown anything in the house with it? Not yet. We're planning to. We've been meaning yeah. to all been winter to, to experiment <laughs> having it right inside a big glass door and we haven't gotten to it. Um, but part of the plan is to go ahead and grow leafy greens in that here, probably start them in February mm -hmm. and see if we can just get a little bit of jump on the lettuce in the house early. Yeah. And you can totally do that. People do uh, do that with these green stock planters. Yeah, they're really formulated just to do that. They're made yeah. to be able to do that, and they're a great system. So and they're on casters, so they're easy so to move in and, and out. Even them. when the seasons are changing, you can take them out during yeah. the day, bring it in inside. So we'll we'll leave you a link to that. They give our subscribers a discount, so we'll leave you a link below. You can go check those out, um, and uh, they're uh, really useful and well-designed. Yeah. Okay, Alexandra Yunkins. Yunkins, hope I got that right, Alexandra on backyard gardens. Just wondering if you have pros and cons of adding blood to compost and or the garden. I butcher pretty much all year, but have not tried this. Mm, yeah, this is a good one. This is a good one. I love this question and it freaks a lot of people out because a lot of people <laughs> think you shouldn't put any blood, any offal, any of your butchering waste into your compost. And there are some cons. You can, could develop um, some toxins, some bad bacteria if okay. you don't do it right. Um, but it is totally viable and a great use of your resources. Yeah. Blood itself is high in nitrogen, and so they make a nitrogen additive out of uh, blood meal. And um, you can totally add it. You just want to make sure you've got a good compost pile and that it's working and is really digesting well and biologically active and not just sitting there going bad. And the that's where you have thought. problems. Well, that's where yeah. people have problems. And that's where this idea that you don't put meat or animal products into your compost piles mm -hmm. is because they don't have an active compost pile with probably enough carbon and it's actually right. active. And so they end up with a pile of rotting material instead of something that's actually composting. But if you're doing that butchering at home anyways, mm -hmm. you have to get rid of the blood somewhere. It doesn't make sense to just go dump it because you want that nutrients actually in your garden. Those are great nutrients Absolutely. to have. So yeah. it's really a good idea and so, if you can do your compost pile right. So what we do in the fall when we start butchering is we just use tons of wood shavings. Mm -hmm. And you can literally bury it. Our dogs don't even get into it yeah. if we bury it so well. And that gets it breaking down. We mix it in the middle of the pile and then cover it in wood shavings. And then through the fall, we start to add garden waste and lots of other stuff to it. So you need to do a little research on that. We can't go into it here, but it is totally viable. It's um, it's just a great thing to do. There's no reason to haul it to the dump or do anything else with it. You just want to recycle right there on your property. Now, let me ask really quickly, are there other ways to use blood into the garden? Like, can you dilute it down enough or is it better to compost it? I have. So I've taken it mm -hmm. and with that idea of a blood meal, but, you know, I haven't tried to make blood meal and dry yeah. it out. That would just be, I, I just don't think that's a, yeah, you need to use really a lot of energy to do that. And there's just no reason for that, really, mm -hmm. unless you're just going to go buy it because you need that source. You don't have any other way to get it. But yes, I have tried watering it down and watering the plants with it. Yeah. Um, you know, it works. I haven't got real specific and I've never had a problem with it. I think it's done good, but mm -hmm. I haven't been very scientific about it. The problem with it is the blood gets thick and it's pretty hard to get it fully dissolved. Okay. So I always still end up with a bunch that I got to throw in the compost pile. Okay. So, you know, if you're needing a source of nitrogen and you want to play with that, it, it works fine. I've mm -hmm. never seen any damage from it. I think a general rule of thumb is to water it down 10 to 1. 
one part blood to two parts That's certainly if that you're right? going to get into urine, yeah. that, that's about what it is. Right. And people say 20 to 1, 10 to 1. I, on blood, I don't have that on top okay. of my, uh, my head. But that would be pretty safe. I would yeah. say that was pretty safe. You're not going to overdo it if you're at 10 to 1. Okay. Yeah. Good. All righty. Let's see here. Okay. Binary Atlas okay. <laughs> on easy, fresh bread in five minutes says, I could use some advice. We love the bread, but I'm having trouble with portioning the right size to make a loaf for sandwiches. Any tips? Yes. If you're having a hard time eyeballing, and I am a very inexact person. <laughs> so every time I grab a little ball of that dough to cook, I'm sure it's a different amount. So if you're trying to fill a loaf pan just right, mm -hmm. Your best bet is to weigh out your dough. Most loaf pans will come with a rating of how many pounds loaf it's supposed to hold. Um, so weigh out your dough and just get, you know, if it's a one and a half pound loaf pan, then go ahead and get about a pound and a half of dough and get it in there. And that should help you get the exact right proportions. Now, you may have to, if you still don't have the original information that came with your loaf pan, just measure your loaf pan and go and find information on the internet from a new loaf pan with the same measurements so you can get that poundage. Cool. Yeah. Right on. Yeah. All right. This, I love this question. And um, this is just life on the homestead and solving different problems in the garden <laughs> here. Amanda Taylor on Backyard, Backyard Gardens Can Seriously Produce says, my barn cat keeps using my raised beds as his litter box. What do I do about that? Right. We yeah. have, yeah, totally understand. And if, you know, we get a lot of questions about what's the best um, defense against gophers and small, and it's it's cats. It's just this really hands are. down cats. Nothing works as well as good cats. However, cats <laughs> sometimes really like the beds. So I struggled with this this year on our yeah. raised beds where we were growing lettuces, uh -huh. and I didn't have them mulched, and because uh, I had to be starting little seeds in succession. And the cats just wanted to get all in there, and it drove me nuts. They loved and it. You know what? I, I don't have a foolproof solution for you. Um, Keep as much mulch as you can. They would not touch the beds that were mulched um, heavily with wood shavings. Okay. They just, they didn't mess with that. They, they weren't interested like in that. What they liked was that nice bed that was just freshly composted after I had seeded <laughs> these small seeds, which I couldn't mulch because we're growing <laughs> lettuces and leafy greens real close together. And um, I, I couldn't do anything but really run the cats off. I mean, you could get a motion sensor with a sprinkler and maybe train them. Some people do that for a variety of pests in the garden. So, um, but then you still want the cats in the garden. Right. So we just kind of dealt with it. It, 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 you know, we had some areas that we just couldn't produce from, uh, but it wasn't bad. And we just kind of, that's, this is where you got to have a little bit of give and right. take because we're wanting to use nature there in the form of the cats to control what are actually much more damaging critters mm -hmm. than their little bit of fooling around. <laughs> now, I do want to say really quickly though, because some people are <clears throat> concerned about the health problems related with cat scat <laughs> mm -hmm. in their sure. gardens. Um, and that can be a real problem, but if your soil is biologically active, it should be able to handle those things. Right. So, you know, just make sure you're focusing on having soil that is alive and working, and that should help balance out any of the health problems, you know, any of the, con what, what would the word be? <laughs> there's, there's a really good word right there. Anything that might get into your soil that would not be good. <laughs> and, I mean, obviously, too, if you've got plants that you're harvesting, they're growing, wash them. Um, usually what the cats like, in my experience, is those areas that I've just seeded. 
Yeah. And what happens is nothing really grows there anyway. So I'm not, I don't even, you know. It, if the cats get into yeah, it. Yeah. Because they just, you just, you just end up having to just leave that area alone. Yeah. Maybe remove the poo if it's there. Mm-hmm. Um, and you just, you don't end up getting really anything out of that anyways, because they've disturbed it so yeah. much. So. Okay, uh, Jade McGaw on No Fuss Herbal Salve asks, do you keep a bowl, spoon, etc. for only making salves and lotions? So a dedicated spoon. If not, what are your tips to get them very clean? Man, I just found a jar that the kids had. Oh, it's our salve for the cow oh. that you make mm-hmm. for, for keeping the teats, uh, you know, moist and everything. And I tried to wash that thing out. I was like, oh my goodness, what do you do with this? So... Yeah. I'm wondering this too. Okay, so there's there's kind of a give and take here. At one point, I actually had a separate set of bowls and measuring spoons and all sorts of things for salve type things. Then I had a whole nother set for making soaps. And then I had a whole nother set for my kitchen, just regular stuff. And somewhere that just became ridiculous. Mm. Like I just can't have all these different sets of things. Now, I will say, if you're working with something with beeswax in it, it um, it can be challenging to get off. Mm-hmm. And so you may want a separate set of items for that, just because you're never going to be able to get it quite as clean as you would like. <laughs> um, you would really have to probably put it into a pot of boiling water and boil it out, mm-hmm. honestly, to get it all the way out. So for something like salves or the lotions it's probably a good idea to have a second set. I just keep scrubbing personally at this point. (laughs) And occasionally we get a jar, you know, something like that that just doesn't come clean really well because it's hard to get your hand in there. But again, if you boil it, it should. Um, I try to just keep those aside and then use them for self a second time. So as long as they've been washed and all the way dried, they're just fine to refill with self. Um, as far as the soaps and using, you didn't ask about this one, Jade, but I know a lot of people keep a whole separate set of utensils just for soap making. And it finally dawned on me, here I'm washing my dishes with soap and I'm making soap. Why can I not use these things, these bowls that I'm making soap with for my food? Because I'm going to use that same soap that I just made in order to wash all my food dishes. Right. So it didn't make much sense to me to keep those separate. So just make sure you wash it out well so you don't have any grains of lye. That's the that's the only big thing that you don't want. So, cool. Yeah. All right. Sabrina D. Lane on an apartment to 40 acres. Hey, I love your videos. Thank you for sharing all your knowledge and experience with me. Do you believe age is a factor in homesteading? <laughs> when starting at a later age, say 50s, should we perhaps not consider... Should we perhaps not consider livestock or limit livestock to chickens, goats, rabbits? Thanks. Mm. Yeah. I, you know, Sabrina, I think that really is going to have to do with you and your personal circumstance, mm-hmm. honestly. Some people have had animals for you know their life or maybe have had experience with animals. And in their 50s, they're very adept and you know, capable and feel very comfortable with having large livestock around. Um, And some people, if it's a brand new experience, it's just too much to start at that point in life. So I think you really have to take stock of how you feel about it. If it's something that's scary to you, it's probably not a great place to start. So you want to start with something that's easy. So, you know, again, you mentioned chickens, goats, rabbits. Honestly, I've got to say something that I don't hear talked about very much. A cow is way easier to keep than a goat. 
um, in most That's cases. That's our opinion. I mean, we know a lot of people that do goats. And we do. It's just never been our Your thing. Your fencing is a lot easier to deal yep. with with a cow than it is a goat. There are a lot you know, I don't want to say slower. They're larger animals, so they don't move as quickly as a goat, although they can move plenty quickly. We're talking dairy cow. A dairy cow, yeah. yeah. So, um, you know, I, I think you just have to find what's going to work for you, and I think it's going to be different for everybody. Well, and obviously the shape that you're in physically is, mm-hmm. is a factor in that. And then also the resources you have available to you. The more you can create systems up front mm-hmm. and be well thought out and planned out, the easier it is going to be to manage whatever animals you have. And right. that's kind of the case. But obviously smaller ones, you know, they're easier to work with mm-hmm. if you don't have as developed a systems. Um, so the more you can, you can create a system and an infrastructure right. to work with your animals, for your situation, the easier that's going to be. But yeah, I mean, you know, we're all aging, and so we need to be careful about what we do and be wise about what we take on so that we don't overdo it and burn ourselves out. Yeah. And that's easier to do at 50 than at 20. <laughs> we're starting to feel bad, <laughs> aren't we? I'm, I'm realizing that, yep. Yeah. Oh, My okay. mind still thinks I'm 20. <laughs> all right. Tyler McCurry. On no fuss herbal salve, which this is not an herbal salve question, okay. though. Can you please explain to me the difference in milk from the time it comes from the cow until it's all separated out? Like whole milk has cream, right? Then the cream comes off, and that's the, what's left is the skim. Is a liquid that comes from the butter baking, butter making process. Sorry, called buttermilk. Um, and and I think this is the best part of the question. If so, why doesn't it taste like buttermilk from the store? Okay. This is a big question. There's a lot, There's a lot in here, here to unpack. But I think some of the challenges is there's a difference in terminology that's used in grocery store dairy products mm-hmm. than what we use from homemade dairy products. So um, when you go out to your barn and milk a cow, you have what is truly whole milk yep. that is actually called cream line milk, if you want to get into a different term. And the reason there's a different term there is because the whole milk you buy from the grocery store is actually about 4% milk. It has been already had 4%, unlike fat or cream. Yeah, butter, butter fat. And so you, what they've done at the grocery, with the grocery store milk is they've skimmed all the milk off. They've put about 4% of butter fat back in there and they call that whole milk. It is not really whole milk like it would come so out of the cow. you're kind of getting ripped off. You're getting cheated, honestly. <laughs> <laughs> that shouldn't be called whole milk because it just isn't really. And if yeah. you have a Jersey cow and you bring in truly whole milk from your cow, you're going to be amazed at the difference in creaminess. That's because it's got a lot more cream in it. But once you skim the milk off uh, or the cream off the top of your milk, then you are removing that butter fat from the milk, or at least a percentage of it. Now, if you're just skimming with a spoon, it's very unlikely that you're going to get non-fat milk. You're probably home. closer, just if you're not using a separator, which is what right. most of us are doing. We're not using a separator at home. Right. We're just skimming it with some fashion or another. You're probably, by the time you're done and you've skimmed off that, <laughs> that cream, you're probably closer. I don't know if it's four percent. I mean, you'd, yeah. have, you'd have to technically analyze it, but you're getting closer yeah. to what the store calls a whole milk, right? Exactly. Even though we would still call that a skimmed milk, it would still be a skim milk to us on the right. homestead, but it wouldn't be a non-fat yep. like at the store. 
So there's a lot of confusion with all those terms there. And, you know, you can get into cream and all the different terms that have to do with cream.、Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of them. Now, the buttermilk question is a great question because what we call buttermilk that comes from the store is a cultured milk. It's not actually the leftovers from making butter. So it's actually a whole different product right now. And it's, it would be more like a yogurt. Um, than it is like the leftovers、it's、from making. It's milk that's been cultured. It's milk that's been cultured. You know, so it's had bacteria purposely added to it and let sit so that culture can grow and take over the milk. So I don't know the exact history here. Maybe you do, but is that, did they take originally buttermilk、mm -hmm. and then use it to culture milk to create buttermilk? Or did they just let the buttermilk itself go cultured? No,、know? it actually happened the other way is that. Traditionally, in order to make your butter, you would allow your cream to culture. Right, that's right. That's right. So you would culture、yep. it a little bit. And sometimes you can still do that. If you watch my butter making video, I talk about that and、um, turning it into a little bit like lightly buttermilk, lightly cultured、that's、in、right. order、yep. to make your butter come out. So then the leftovers of that cultured milk that then got turned into butter. Would have been a cultured buttermilk. And that would have been the buttermilk. Like my grandfather drank buttermilk、right. from the farm. Yes. And loved it.、Yes. And then he drank the Knudsen's or whatever it was when I was a kid. And、uh -huh. that was different, he said, but he still really liked it. But he it. still but really it liked it. From,、yeah. That's the original. But if you、process. just make butter, just fresh butter, and then you take what's left over, it's not going to taste anything like store bought buttermilk or homemade cultured buttermilk.、Right. So I hope that I helped. Oh, I think it was good. Yeah, that, <laughs> that was wasn't confusing. Yeah, great.、Yep. All right, great. All right, here's another question. We have two cornfields, maybe five acres each. All、wow. right, those are big cornfields.、Yeah, I know they sprayed them with chemicals. Any tips on restoring the soil and getting rid of the chemicals from the soil? Yeah, great question. So, you probably don't know exactly what they sprayed on there. Most of those chemicals in, and say, a normal biological Uh, scenario, meaning the soil's got average biology going, and it's five to seven years to totally get rid of those.、Mm -hmm. Does that mean you can't use the ground? No. I mean, I, I think we have to be careful. We can't be purists. Right.、Um, you know, if it's so damaged, it's not going to grow much, then you're going to have to do a little restoration before you even use it. But because of the size there, you're not going to be able to import, say, a bunch of compost. Yeah.、Um, that's going to be very hard. To do, but you've got to get the biology going and improve the health of the soil because it's actually the microbes that are going to break down the chemicals and make them inert and break them apart.、Mm -hmm. the, the biology is very, very powerful. So, really, it's going to be cover cropping,、um, is going to be probably the most inexpensive way, though that's going to take longer. And that's growing a diversity of cover crops and building your soil that way, along with nitrogen fixers and whatnot. So, the best thing I can do is recommend that you check out a book by Gabe Brown called Dirt to Soil. Fascinating book, very good. And、uh, he'll give you a lot of ideas about how this works and even different、um, cover cropping scenarios.、Okay. And that'll, that'll get you going. But that's, that's, that would be the best way that I would recommend、um, that's not going to cost a ton of money. Could you do for something that scale? A、like、large amount of compost heat? That's 10 acres. That's a lot of land. 
So could you do like a big spray on a compost tea? You certainly could. That just gets a little more advanced. That's why yeah. I didn't bring that one out. But yeah, if you wanted to get into compost teas, but I couldn't even begin to tell you how much you would need. Yeah. So that becomes to, to make that compost tea correctly yeah. and then be able to apply it at that scale. That becomes another larger pro project, a, a great way to go about it. And you could even combine that with cover cropping or a crop mm, that you're going to use. So really absolutely. Yeah. That's just a whole, yeah, that's a whole nother area to yeah. go into that I can't speak to a whole lot. Okay. Great. Okay, and another one. We recently purchased 113 acres. Yay, congratulations. Yeah. We will need to build a house, so we are starting from scratch. Wow. I watched your video about zones. I'm assuming that means permaculture zones. I think so, yep. Any other tips about where to place everything outside of the buildings? So, um, good question. That is, that's an excellent question. It's so good you're thinking about this right now, and you're starting from scratch, so you really have an opportunity to set things out. Uh, really well for yourself. So first of all, I'll have a, I'll have a tip here in a second, but dive into perm, perm, permaculture. Sorry, and um, you can get the I'm sorry, it just went blank. The introduction of permaculture by Bill Mollison, and there's mm-hmm. some just great information in there. We'll get you a link to that book as well. Um, but in a general sense, what you're trying to do is focus on areas of activity. So the things that have the most activity that you're going to go to multiple times a day, you want closest to your house. And then there's going to be things you're going to maybe go to one times a day. That can be a little further out and so on. That, that's just the general tip. Um, but you really want to dive in and get some resources like that introduction to permaculture or some videos online really that will really start to lay that out and give you examples uh, of that. And that will help you so much. And you'll just be off to a great start on that property as you get things laid out with that thought process. Yeah, when you can do that, that just ends up saving you so much time and so much energy. Yeah. Because you can just, you know, arrange your area so that you're not walking further than you need to walk every day. It ends up actually saving a lot of time and making your energy a lot more useful. And and even your pathways, just as an example, you might have some things that you go to multiple times a day. And, you know, a certain types of gardens, the chicken coop, mm-hmm. uh, there's different areas like that. And then you may have, say, a barn that, you know, sometimes you're multiple times a day, sometimes you're once a day, um, but it's got to be a little further out. Well, if you can line things up, you want your paths to be able to even be lined up in, Meaning, in how you're coming and going. So you right. can you can go out to the barn, do what you need to do, stop back by, say, the chicken coop on the way in instead of having going one direction for this and another direction right. for that. I mean... There's an infinite amount of possibilities, so you just have to apply that to your situation. But that kind of thinking uh, is going to help a lot. And the more you can just look at examples through videos online and some books like that introduction to permaculture, the more you'll start putting the pieces together for your own situation. Good. Good. Okay. Michelle Mays Martins on Butter Three Ways. Another butter question here. Um, Let's see. First of all, love your channel. Thank you. Uh, Second, I have a question about the start of butter. You say add some buttermilk to the cream the night before. Is that the buttermilk that is the byproduct of making a previous batch of butter or the type of buttermilk you can buy in the store? (laughs) Okay, there we're back to the buttermilk question. People are really thinking about that right now. Yeah, people are thinking about buttermilk. Okay, so again, we're going to go back to the difference of those things. You can just go to the store and buy an active live buttermilk. And that is absolutely correct to use here if you though culture your cream the night before with that buttermilk you then have made buttermilk cultured buttermilk right 
So at that point, your buttermilk is a cultured buttermilk, which means you can take that buttermilk and use it for the next batch. Does that make sense? So you can't, you need to start somewhere. You need to start that process with some store-bought buttermilk so you get the right culture in there. But then you can kind of get the process going so that you can use your buttermilk and your buttermilk. Now, I've got to say, usually that only works for about four generations before you want to go back to the store-bought buttermilk to refresh those cultures. Um, But honestly, you're just, you can just keep doing it until you notice a change in the um, cultured taste. Because you're just going to get other it's going to just start things changing. competing yeah. with that. It's going right. to adjust over time. Yeah, especially yeah. if you're using a raw cream to make your butter because there's already bacteria in that. And that's not bad. That can be a great thing. You're just moving towards a clabbered milk instead of a buttermilk, which, you know, we can get into a lot of technical differences there. But, um, but yeah. So, again, hopefully I have clarified, not confused no, on did, that one. Good job. You did <laughs> okay. Great. Okay. Let's, let's go a different direction here. And uh, talk about some herbs. Oh, good. Salem Forup on bone healing comfrey compress. Right. Right. Good one. Uh, Do you reheat the liquid when you go to use it again to do more compresses throughout the day? And of course, Mm -hmm. just real quick before you answer, Carolyn's got a great video on using a comfrey compress. So you can go check that out. We'll link to it for you. And that'll put this question in there. Context. Absolutely. And yes, I do reheat the liquid because that warmth is a really important part of that compress. It just helps your skin to actually absorb all the really important parts of those herbs. So you do want to reheat it, but don't um, use it for more than a day uh, because you'll start losing a lot of the properties right there as they evaporate off. So after one day, go ahead and get rid of it. Make a fresh batch of your compro- po- com- compost. What are compost. we doing? A compress. Compress, yes. Sorry. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> Make a fresh batch of your compress, and then you can reheat it for that day too. Cool. Okay. All right. Now we're moving on to canning. Lori Grass on how to pressure can beef stew. You make it look so easy. <laughs> Do I hear that a lot? But I've got a question. Could you use dehydrated veggies in canning? Okay. Um, she's kind of got several questions here, but it really that really does sum it up here. The, can you use dehydrated veggies in canning? That is a really good question. And, you know, this is one of those areas where because they ha- it hasn't been tested um, because the National Center for Home Food Preservation has not had the funding to test everything they want to test. So the default answer is no. If they haven't tested it, not because there's anything unsafe or anything they think might be unsafe, but just because they haven't tested it so they can't say it is safe. So therefore, the default answer is no. Now, there's some of these things, though, that we can use our brains and puzzle through and work out. And personally... It's good they're still allowing us to do that. Well... (laughs) You just have to do it quietly. Don't tell anybody, <laughs> but personally, I'd have no problem with it. What you would want to make sure you did, though, is make sure your vegetables are well rehydrated before you used them. Okay? Okay. Seems like there wouldn't be a lot of point then. To re- well rehydrate them? Well, to go through that as opposed to, I guess, just if you don't have anything else in your canning and you've yeah. got dehydrated veggies. Okay. I, I'm, yeah. I was thinking, thinking through that it. one going, okay, well, yeah. it seems like a lot of work to no. dehydrate, to rehydrate, to can. You want to but, rehydrate them because the, 
if you put them in dry and they slowly rehydrate, they're going to absorb liquid. And then you're going to change your liquid balance okay. on things. And you need to make sure you have that liquid balance correct. So you want to put them in hydrated, even if you start with dehydrated. Cool. Okay. <laughs> All right. We're going to get down and dirty here a little bit. This is just right. re, this is just some reality on the homestead of dealing with things that are a challenge. Um, not huge, but but nonetheless. Daniel Roy, Danielle Roy, sorry, okay. Danielle, on our early evening chore routine. Good. How do you keep up with all the dishes? <laughs> it's a have, daily Do battle. you have a dishwasher? Do you run the dishwasher three times a day? Do you hand wash throughout the day and run the dishwasher at night? We're a family of seven and keeping up on the dishes is difficult for us. It sure is. Yes, <laughs> it is. Uh, we do have a dishwasher. It we break dishwashers left and right. And I think the reason is because, yes, when we do have a dishwasher, we run it three times a day. <laughs> so, so I did the calculations, right? Because right. we, we've, we've gone through dishwashers. And I'm like, why don't these things last? Right. And it's very hard to get information on. But we have some other friends that independently did this. We didn't know it. And we came up with the same conclusion. The way we use a dishwasher, um, we use it so much that what usually lasts 10 years Right. By the stats, we go. We do in a year and a half. Yeah, by the amount of washings right. that we do, because and, we use it well, three times we've a day. We've got thirteen people in the house, and there's a lot of people that come and go. There's often fifteen or more people at our table. Um, so the dishwasher runs, the hands run, everybody Everything, pitches in, yeah. and yeah. so. Here to give you a little more practical answer, because we actually, I say that the dishwasher breaks often because then we're in a different scenario as we wait to either replace a dishwasher or get it fixed. Luckily, our oldest son has become a whiz at fixing appliances, He's which just is just about like, rebuilt the current get, one we have, get, which get, you can do. Get your somebody who might be interested and start having them learn how to do it because yeah. it saves a lot of money in the long run. Yep. Um, but we try to make sure that somebody is assigned dishwashing after every single meal. Somebody or a group of people. So I don't want to just, it's not always just one person. Mm -hmm. That way we're always keeping up with the dishwasher. And my rule is that even if the dishwasher isn't all the way, all the way 100% full, which is very rare, we run it anyways three times a day. Um, now, we're not going to if there's just a small percentage of things in there, but if it's close to full, we're going to run it three times a day and it gets unloaded and put away. If we're at a place where we're hand washing, like if the dishwasher's broken, we just went through about a month and a half, two months of the While dishwasher we were waiting, not working. Par- waiting for parts. Yep. Yeah. Um, then we just hand wash the dishes after every single meal and make sure they're washed, dried and put away. So that it doesn't pile up on you. Because once it starts piling up, it's just so hard to face the kitchen the next meal. Well, I got to say, usually there's hand washing going even when the dishwasher is yeah. going because there's pots. There's just different things. So it's a real team effort. Mm-hmm. And um, it's, yeah, it's a fair amount of time to keeping the dishes clean. The real key to it is coming up with a system that works for you and sticking to it. Like getting your family trained to it and just <clears throat> making sure it's taken care of every single meal so it's dealt with. Cool. Okay. All right. A couple more before? I think we're starting think to so. get pretty long here. Yeah, I think we can get a couple more in. Okay. Okay. Uh, let's see here. I'm looking to see if there's anything new just on subject wise. So let's do one more uh, garden type one and one more bread one. How's that? Okay. Okay. So you want to take that one? Professor Kitchen on how to create an instant garden. Professor Kitchen. I don't know. I like <laughs> it that. says that informative professor. video. 
where do you store your compost? I can get some from a neighbor, but don't have a barn to store it in. Yeah, totally understand. And um, most of the time you don't, you know, a covered structure is ideal. Um, but you know, having the resources to have a structure just for your compost, you know, sometimes isn't real feasible. We've got some in our barn during the winter, and then we have a large pile outside. And so you can keep it outside and keep it covered as much as you can, especially during the rainy season. You do need to uncover it because you need to let you need to let the off gassing and everything out. So, um, but you know, when it's kind of dormant in the winter, if you live in that environment, it's fine to cover it so that. Um, the nutrients don't get leached out, especially from the rain. Did you say how you cover it? Uh, tarps, usually. Yeah, yeah okay. big tarps. Yep. Yeah. And uh, that's that's the best way to go at it, unless you can afford to have a you know a roof overhead. Mm-hmm. Okay. Let's see. One more here. Um, sorry, Lola M on five minute bread. What's the difference between active? and instant yeast. Okay, good one. Instant yeast is formulated so that you don't have to let it sit in warm water before you start baking with it. Active dry yeast, it's usually best to let it sit in the liquid for 10 to 15 minutes to let it reactivate. I always recommend baking with the active dry yeast. I find that the instant yeast is much less reliable in the results that it gives. Mm. So I really, really recommend that active dry yeast. Um, You can get active dry yeast that is non-GMO, which is really nice. I don't know if you can get instant yeast that is non-GMO. If it doesn't say non-GMO, though, you got to know that at least in the United States, pretty much all of our baking yeast has been genetically modified. So you want to get something that says not genetically modified. Mm. That would be really, really good. So... um, So yeah, I recommend using the active dry yeast. Very cool. Well, that was a good bit of questions. Yeah. And um, thanks you guys for those. And you know what? Keep them coming. Just drop them in Mm -hmm. to the conversation down below. And we collect those between pantry chats. And uh, we'll get to as many of them as we can next time. Yeah, it's been great hanging out with you guys. We'll see you soon. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Pantry Chat, Food for Thought. If you've enjoyed this episode, please subscribe, rate, and review. To view the show notes and any other resources mentioned on this episode, you can learn more at homesteadingfamily.com slash podcast. We'll see you soon. Goodbye.